it's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. This is still season six, and we're still discussing some of my all-time favorite movies as double features, according to themes that I'm totally making up. Today's topic of conversation, it didn't expect to end up in space. So I have a, a healthy fear of outer space. It's infinite and beautiful and terrifying all at the same time. Amazing things very rarely, though, happen in space and pop culture, whether based in history I see you, Apollo 13, or completely fictional. Um, No to Sandra Bullock and gravity. Space is usually a place filled with tragedy, suffocation, and the occasional alien. Sure, Mark Watney is inspiring in The Martian, his resilience and intelligence and fortitude, but he was also stranded on a planet that was actively working on killing him. Alone. No thank you. Or interstellar, human ingenuity is hope-filled and fascinating, But can you imagine launching yourself into space in an untested craft, knowing full well that there are literally almost zero odds that you'll make it home? I got into a kick a few years ago, one summer where I was reading all of these books about the space race and the start of NASA. And these men, I still hold to this day, are probably some of the most amazing and courageous men on the face that have ever walked this planet. <laughs> they, they're just like, yeah, I know how to fly a plane. Sure, just launch me into the atmosphere and we'll see what happens. I, I just can't imagine having that kind of bravery and that kind of confidence to know that if something does go wrong, that you have the intelligence and the capacity to not, you know, lose your mind and, and faint because that's what I would do. <laughs> One of my favorite things in the whole world is finding myself in a place with light, little light pollution so that I can stand in awe at the night sky, the billion star motel, a ceiling of speckles that just the boggle the imagination and is filled with wonder and possibility. You feel both minuscule and mighty under their glow. The stars, stars call to my heart. One day I will live somewhere where that view is available to me anytime there's a clear sky. I'm determined but I will forever keep my feet planted firmly on the ground. No joy rides through the atmosphere for Emily. So what does this theme actually entail? Well, this one doesn't get more straightforward. You have a person or a group of people, humans, earthlings, who accidentally or unintentionally find themselves in spaceships that launch them through that atmosphere I'm determined never to travel through and into the darkness of space. They are then either tasked with with fighting an unknown alien foe, or they have to use their noggins to try to get home, or both, often both. There are a surprising number of movies with this particular plot, Space Camp, where a group of kids at Space Camp are accidentally <laughs> launched into space, which may be the most unbelievable plot ever, or Explorers, where Ethan Hawke, River Phoenix, and some other kid, I don't know him, build a spaceship that sends them into space, or The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where Arthur Dent catches a ride on a passing ship after the Earth is destroyed, or Contact, where a scientist ends up in a wormhole that brings her not only face-to-face with aliens, but also her dead father, or Flash Gordon, where a football star and journalist get lured onto a spaceship and sent to an alien planet, or Armageddon which we will be talking about next season, where a group of oil miners are sent into space to destroy an asteroid. And those are just a few. Just a few, guys. Yes, they all have happy endings, but the horror and anxiety they face while in space is something I, while I love in fiction, 
I just never want to experience it in real life. So today we're discussing an 80s favorite. I love this one. The Last Starfighter and a more modern gem and maybe the most perfect parody ever created, Galaxy Quest, which is absolutely in my top 10 favorite movies. So movie number one, up first, the 1984 science fiction adventure, The Last Starfighter. Uh, This one you might be familiar with, even if you haven't seen the movie, but have read Ernest Cline's Armada. He does um, talk about that one a little bit. So we have Alex Rogan. He's a teenager living in the Starlight Starbright trailer park with his mom and younger brother, Louis. He's got a girlfriend, very cute, that lives with her grandma nearby. Alex and Maggie. Um, and Alex has big dreams. He wants to leave his small California town with Maggie and is hoping a scholarship will help him make that dream come true. Spoiler, he doesn't get the scholarship, which just crushes him. Anyway, the only form of entertainment in the trailer park, besides fixing the electricity so the seniors can watch their soaps, is an arcade game called Starfighter. The player defends the frontier against Zor and the Kodan Armada in a space battle. And Alex defeats the game one night and gets the high score. The residents are hilariously excited about his achievement. And that night uh, is actually the night where he finds out that he doesn't get the scholarship and he's going to be stuck going to community college nearby. Uh, so he's, he's won the game. He goes home. His mom breaks the news to him and he kind of storms off. He's really upset. And that's when he meets the inventor of the game, a guy named Centauri, who has been using the game to find those with the gift, a test to find starfighters. He, he like offers Alex a ride in his car and Alex gets in and he whisks him away up into the stars to the Ryland Star League leaving a doppelganger android named Beta at the trailer park as cover. Centauri is hoping that Alex will help the Ryland Star League defeat Zor and the Kodan Empire. Kor is a native Ryland trader and the son of Starfighter Commander. Um, Centauri thinks Alex was born to be the gunner in a spacecraft called the Gunstar. He gets partnered with a kind of reptile-looking pilot named Grig. And Alex is understandably alarmed after he was at home in his trailer park. And then all of a sudden he's being tossed into space and discovering there is a galactic war happening. So he actually asks to be taken home and Centauri reluctantly agrees. And as he's picking up Beta, they are attacked by an assassin and Centauri is shot. Meanwhile, back at Star League, a turncoat destroys the starfighter fleet, killing everyone except Grig and destroying all the ships except for one. So now Alex is in kind of a tricky situation. The Kodan Empire knows where he lives and his family isn't safe. And if he doesn't, and if he doesn't, if he doesn't go help the Ryland Star League, the Empire may take over. So Alex goes back and is trained by Grig while the Beta unit stays on Earth impersonating him, which is trickier than he anticipates. Maggie is pretty suspicious. Alex just isn't acting the way he normally does. But At one point, the android's cover is blown and she figures out it's not really Alex when they get attacked again by a Zondozan assassin guy and some of his uh, some of the beta unit circuitry is revealed. So up in space, Alex and Grig attack the Kodan mothership, crippling its communications. And when they run out of ammo, Alex activates the Death Blossom, a secret weapon that destroys the remaining Kodan fighters. Alex is proclaimed a savior. And then he's invited to help rebuild the Star League. He agrees to stay, but only if he can return to Earth and get Maggie. And so that's what he does. He shows up at the trailer park one night. The ship just kind of lands 
right next to the game that he was always playing. And Maggie is hesitant to leave her grandma behind, but grandma encourages her. And so she eventually agrees and they blast off back in space. And then you have a scene where Lewis runs over and starts to train on the game as well. Why is this one on the list? That was a really fast, a very fast summary. <laughs> Why is this one on the list? It's a classic as far as I'm concerned. And I suspect many a young person's dream if they grew up playing something like Galaga, that you thought you were just playing a game, but you were also in training to save the world in a galactic armada. I mean, come on, that would have been awesome. Would I have gotten in the car with Centauri in the first place? Probably not, except for the fact that the gentleman also played Harold Hill in The Music Man. Not that you should trust Harold Hill either, but I'm quite fond of him, so I've always loved Centauri. But it's also on the list because of Alex and his dreams, that dream to want to strike out on your own, to build yourself a big life. I love that. Big doesn't have to mean grand or expensive or crazy audacious. It can just mean exactly that, a, a life that you build for yourself. And when the opportunity came along, granted a terrifying opportunity, Alex took it. He got on that spaceship, he became a gunner, and he saved the Armada. He could have just chosen to stay at the Starlight Starbright trailer park, but he didn't. And I've just really always liked that. Some interesting tidbits about the movie. The star car that Centauri uses to take Alex into space is based on a DeLorean, including its gullwing doors and its stainless steel construction. According to screenwriter Jonathan Arbutel, the idea for this movie came about because he wandered into a video arcade and saw a young boy playing a video game. And also at that time, he was reading the book The Once and Future King by T.H. White. And it occurred to him that what if a video game had been a sword and a stone and a boy had scored an incredible number in the video game, which sent out a ripple effect across the universe? A great deal of the scenes with the beta unit were shot after main filming was complete because the test audience liked the comic relief of the beta unit's scenes and director Nick Castle decided they added more originality to the boy gets to go to outer space story. <laughs> I don't know if that's really true. I do like the beta unit though. This is why in many of the beta beta unit scenes Lance Guest who plays Alex Rogan is wearing a wig. He had cut his hair by the time those scenes were shot. And the translator given to Alex Rogan, uh, where he can contact Centauri, uh, is the circuit board of a digital watch. I just love how some of props are just, you think they're these like, I don't know, high tech things that they built, but no, they just took a watch apart. <laughs> Dan O, oh goodness, I don't know how to say his name. Hurley, Her Hurley, yeah. Also played Grig's wife in Grig's family photo. So the guy who played Grig dressed up as Grig's wife also in the family photo. And apparently Will Wheaton is in the movie. I'm pretty sure that is confirmed, but he just kind of runs in and out of the scene. You don't actually see him. According to IMDb, there were some speaking scenes that were cut out. And finally, in 2007, a musical based on the movie was performed as part of the New York Musical Theater Festival, which I think is amazing. So that's my first choice. If you haven't seen The Last Starfighter or if it has been a while, I highly recommend it. And number two, for another in my top 10 favorite movies of all time, because it is insanely quotable and hilarious with the most interesting cast, is 1999's Galaxy Quest. We've got the cast of an 80s space adventure TV series making the rounds at cons and commercials, unhappily, depressingly making the rounds. <laughs> There's the former commander and conceited twat, Jason Nesmith, 
We've got Gwen, whose sole role on the show was to talk and repeat everything that the computer would say as Lieutenant Tawny. Alexander is a moody Brit that can't believe his life has led him here. He's played by um, Alan Rickman. He plays Dr. Lazarus, the ship's science officer and a member of the Mahtar, an alien species known for their super intelligence. Then we have Fred, uh, who is a laid-back fellow that seems kind of high, <laughs> even though I'm not sure he was. Fred is, plays Tech Sergeant Chen, the ship's chief engineer. Um, a couple more. We have Tommy Weber, who plays Lieutenant Laredo, a precocious child pilot that is now grown, but is always kind of seen as the kid. And finally, oh, the oh, finally Guy Fliegman. He is the gem. An unnamed cast member, only known as crewman number six, who died in episode 81. And he just wants to be a part of the crew. He likes to be in the spotlight. So the whole cast is pretty ticked at Jason. He's always late. He hogs the spotlight. And sometimes he books gigs without him. He's so self-absorbed that he has no idea that they can't stand to be around him. But then he hears some con goers say they heard him trash-talking Um him trash talking Jason behind his back so that night Jason goes on a binger and he wakes up to find some crazy individuals that smile way too much knocking on his back door he thinks they're there to take him to an appearance but really they're an alien race known as the Thermians uh, who need help fighting a bad guy named Saurus before he knows it he finds himself in a space in space on a working replica of the fictional ship, the NSEA Protector, the starship from Galaxy Quest, the TV show. Jason has no idea he's actually in space and ends up telling the Thermians, that, that alien race that smiles too much, to fire on Saris before, Saris? Saris, before <laughs> asking him to go home. Uh, that's when he travels through a black hole and is just totally jazzed by the whole whole experience. He immediately rushes to the appearance he missed to try to convince his crewmates that he was in space. And that's also where the Thermians show back up to let him know that Saris is still alive and they still need help. So thinking that Jason is going on another gig without them, the crew agrees to go and they are fish out of water. Turns out the Thermians thought of the old shows as historical documents and replicated everything to the T. The crew kind of has to step back into their roles that they haven't played in forever, but for real this time, and chaos ensues because they're not great at it. Of course they're not. They're actors from a ridiculous sci-fi TV show. So when Saris attacks again, the ship, the Protector, is without power source, so the crew have to head to a planet to find a beryllium sphere. When they return, after, I mean, Jason has to fight a rock monster. Um, it's, it's a whole scene. <laughs> The protector, when they return to the protector, they discover that Saris has seized the ship and is demanding the Omega 13 device, this kind of mysterious technological wonder that showed up in one of the last episodes of the show, but no one really knows what it's supposed to do. The Thermians have created it, but they don't know what it's for. He then reveals to the Thermians, Saris does, that the crew is a fraud um, before activating the self destruct mechanism and jumping ship to leave the Thermians and the Galaxy Quest crew to die. That's when Jason uses a communicator that he, the Thermians had given him a communicator when they dropped him off back home and he had accidentally run into some con goers and their communicators got switched. So he uses it to contact the superfan back on Earth who knows the show intimately. He helps Jason and Gwen deactivate the self-destruct 
mechanism, while the Thermians fight to take back control of the Protector. They win until Sarah shows up and wounds everyone on the bridge. But Jason takes a leap of faith and activates the Omega-13, which is a 13-second time warp to the past. So they get a reset of 13 seconds. He knows Saris is going to storm the bridge, so he's prepared this time. And Saris is defeated, and the crew is able to return home with a crash landing. They have a newfound respect for each other and the show, and they even agree to star in a reboot. So it's a happy ending, of course. Why is this one on the list? Tony Shalhoub as Fred and Sam Rockwell as Guy and Alan Rickman as Alexander and Sigourney Weaver as Gwen and Tim Allen as Jason Nesmith. This one is on the list because the cast is magical and it does not appear on paper, at least to me, that this particular crew would mesh so well together, but the writing is clever and witty it's it's a love story almost to Star Trek, and the Thermians and their smiles will absolutely kill you. I am so very tempted to re- just read off all of the quotable moments, but that would be terribly unexciting audio, so I won't. But I really, really, really want to. Okay, one. I'm going to read one. So there's a scene where the crew has headed down to that planet to find the beryllium sphere, the power source to get the protector running again. Guy is the guy on the show that always dies. He's a red shirt if you're familiar with Star Trek, and he starts to panic as they land. And Jason says, you're not going to die on the planet, Guy. And then Guy says, I'm not? Then what's my last name? And he's getting kind of hysterical. And Jason can't come up with it. So Gwen then tries to calm him down and says, Guy, you have a last name. Then he starts yelling, Mommy. (laughs) And, uh, And right as they're about to land, he starts yelling, Do I? Do I? For all you know, I'm just crewman number six. It's so good. Sam Rockwell is so good. I grew up watching Star Trek The Next Generation. I mean, not religiously, but that was something we tuned, you know, tuned into on Sunday nights when I was younger. And then later on in life, I discovered the original series and developed a mad crush, an appropriate crush, but like more of a ironic, I guess, maybe crush on Captain James T. Kirk. That led into my love of the new movies that have come out with Chris Pine as Kirk and Zachary Quinto as Spock. There's there's just something about adventure and the idea of intelligent civilizations out in the cosmos and the brave folks who would be willing to leave the earth behind for years and years to go find them that I find endlessly fascinating. So the crew in space exploration, that, that's why this one's on the list. And the quotes especially from Guy. Oh, Sam Rockwell. So a few interesting tidbits. The scene where Tim Allen is in the men's room overhearing how the cast of the Galaxy Quest are nobodies and all the co-stars can't stand him mirrors an actual event in William Shatner's life. He discovered the exact same things about himself when he attended a 1986 convention. Director Dean Parasot and star Tim Allen have revealed in interviews that the original tone of the film was much darker, with more scenes of violence. But after test screenings, the film was recut to emphasize the comedy and obtain a PG rating. Sam Rockwell based his betrayal on Bill Paxton's performance in James Cameron's classic Aliens that came out in 1986. In particular, his elevated fear of being killed and his mental collapse upon seeing a motion detector that shows their enemy closing in on them. According to writer David Howard, the continuous melodic yet monotone voice of Thermian commander Mathazar was an original idea that Enrico Colantoni brought to the character. Everyone on the set loved this so much they kept it in the film. I forgot to mention Enrico as 
Mathazar. If if you are not familiar with Enrico and his work, he's also Veronica Mars's dad on the Veronica Mars show. Uh, he is he's brilliant. There's this nerdiness of sorts to him that's genuine, but then there's this toughness as well that you just every time he comes on the the screen, you're kind of drawn to him. I just love him so much. Everyone the set because they loved it so much they actually forced everybody to kind of take on that persona as well that he did in his audition which i love Uh, although alan rickman hated sci-fi as a genre he could not resist taking part in this film as he found the material very funny and in the audio commentary for star trek 2009 director jj abrams says by the way I think we've all gone on record as saying one of our favorite Trek films is Galaxy Quest. And this sequence where Kirk and Sulu are falling toward Vulcan without a parachute, it's in the first movie, the first remake, uh, modern remake, um, is clearly an homage to Tony Shalhoub's great save in that film, which is it's a good moment. There's also this scene, I told you I wasn't just going to quote the movie, but there's this scene where... Uh, Fred, uh, Tony Chalobe's character, he actually falls in love with one of the Thermians and they are making out. And as they're making out, um, so the Thermians are, have these like tentacles that kind of look like giant octopuses that move around the ship, but they can transform themselves into human-esque creatures. But he's, so he's making out with his new girlfriend and her, <laughs> her face is still human. But as they're making out these these tentacles come up and are caressing Tony Shalhoub and guy goes, Oh, Oh, that's not right. That's not right. I I don't do it justice, but you just, you have to watch it. It's so funny, but that is it for today. That's it for a conversation on. They didn't expect to end up in space. I hope it never happens to me. I'll just sit comfortably in my chair at home and read space fiction and be content. I do love a good space fiction though. In the next episode, we're going to be discussing the questionable skills of some hired thugs with Gross Point Blank starring John Cusack and Minnie Dreifer and The Nice Guys starring Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. It's going to be a fun episode. Thank you so much for listening, really. It is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture someone who obviously doesn't really know what they're talking about, well, they can join in on the fun as well. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I'll see you next time. Thank mm-hmm. you.